Welcome to Grit, Guts, and Determination, the Leadville Race Series podcast, and your authority on all things Leadville. I'm your host, Cole Clover, son of race founder, Ken Clover. We want to take you on a journey of storytelling of our now 38-year rich history. We also then want to follow that up with tricks and tips that will get you to that line come August and let our community members have a little say in that too. So sit back, enjoy, and we'll see you this summer. We'll see you at home in Leadville. Leadville fans, I hope you're wearing yellow today because I've got a fast one on deck. Uh, Today I have six-time Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike champion Dave Weens. Now if you've ever wondered how your favorite mountain bike champ is going to stack up against a tour pro, well, Dave has seen this reality not once but three times. And two of those three, he came out victorious. Sorry for the spoiler alert, but there's plenty of other great material in this one that encompasses Dave's pro career all the way through what he does for a living today. So sit back and enjoy. Here's our local homeboy, Dave Wings. We have a saying in Leadville, you don't find Leadville, Leadville finds you. Can you tell me when Leadville found you? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, growing up in suburban Denver, Leadville found our family, really. And um, it was because of, uh, for whatever reason, you know, my folks, neither of them were from Colorado. My mom was from Idaho. My dad was from Kansas. And they moved to the Denver area and, and they got us up in, into the mountains. And we often went camping and fishing at Twin Lakes. And to get to Twin Lakes from Denver, you go right through Leadville. So, um, knew about it really from the beginning, and you know when you go camping uh, like that, you usually on the way home you stop at the first burger joint that you can, and you get the burger fries and a milkshake. So that was certainly um, you know an early introduction to Leadville when I was you know in elementary school, and um, I think it was it's Wild Bill's there when you first get into town on the right coming from Twin Lakes. Um, you know that I think that stop's been there forever, so. Um, yeah, Leadville has been on my radar from the earliest times, way before bike racing. In fact, uh, in high school, I know we were juniors. I think we were juniors in high school. A buddy of mine and a couple of girls, we probably you know lied to our parents and told them we were doing something else, and we went up to Leadville, uh, spent the night up there in in the motel, skied uh, Copper Mountain the next day. You know, just a typical teenage getaway. Um, <laughs> But um, that was that was another Leadville story. So it's certainly been, uh, and, and of course, living in Colorado and you know, being a kayaker and being a skier, I've driven through Leadville a million times and um, you know stopped for meals and and, and all of that. So it had a, a pretty pretty good history with uh, with an awesome place before I even new mountain bikes existed. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and boy, Wild Bills, that takes me back. One of my childhood best friends, his uh, grandmother cooked there until just about 10 years ago, I believe. And then a girl that I went to school with owned that with Wild Bill. So uh, that takes me back as well. Now, and then even your mountain biking routes uh, cross with Leadville as well. Can you tell me? 
about your first mountain bike race experience in Leadville? Yeah, my first mountain bike race in Leadville was actually my fourth race ever. I had done two races uh, of all places in Alaska in 1986 and then uh, moved back to Gunnison in 87 and um, started a lot of my buddies were racing bikes. So the first mountain bike race I went to was in uh, West Cliff and the second mountain bike race I went to was um, it was the Mosquito Pass Challenge that year. Uh, it was a it was a two day race. There was a race on Saturday from Leadville to Fair Play over uh, Western Pass, and then we didn't do that one. But we showed up on Sunday morning in Fair Play, and we rode um, over Mosquito Pass from the race was from Fair Play to Leadville. And so yeah, that was my you know fourth or fifth mountain bike race ever. And uh, I remember I was racing in the expert class. There was pros and experts, but we all started together, and I was doing pretty well. I think I was leading in the expert class. And I picked up, um, you know, some crazy rusted piece of, you know, an artifact from the mining days, <laughs> my tire and, and punctured my tire. And of course I didn't have a tube. I, you know, that was the first flat tire I think I'd ever had on a mountain bike. And I was uh, woefully unprepared. Uh, that was the end of that race. I mean, I, I, of course I got down somehow, um, and into town, but yeah, that was the very, very first race. And then that Mosquito Pass Challenge was uh, it was a mainstay on the calendar during those years, sort of the late 80s. And I think it was, uh, oh no, it was for sure. It was 1988. And um, I went there and that race, you know, started and finished in Leadville. It was a, a more typical mountain bike race. But we went, you know, way up by Climax and we were all over the place and uh, went a ways up Mosquito Pass, but not quite to the top. But it was racing against Rishi Graywall there. Um, and I ended up winning that race. And I think I won 300 bucks. Um, <laughs> my, my first, my first win as a pro and, uh, came in Leadville and I was, I was stoked. It was like, yeah. So, um, no fun, fond, fond memories from, from Leadville, um, throughout the years for sure. Well, and then, uh, yeah, you're digging back into the eighties. I think it was, uh, earlier this year, I was back at my parents' house in, in Leadville and I was digging through the closet and I found an 80s BMX action, and I I was flipping through it, and I get to the back, and there's Dave Weens, and I think it was a, a Diamondback ad, if if uh, memory serves me correctly. Um, I'd say you've had a, a pretty tinker-sized career. How have you stayed in the game for so long? Well, you know, there were there was a crew of us that. that you know, we were very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, some of those riders like, you know, Ned Overend, John Tomac, um, on the men's side were, you know, they were just such phenomenal racers that, you know, their racing resumes alone really, um, have defined them as, as, um, you know, the, the standard of the sport in those days. And then there was sort of, you know, the rest of us who were pretty fast, um, you know, Mike Closer and myself and Daryl Price and Don Myra and, you know, Tinker. Uh, Tinker's actually up there, you know, pretty close to, to Ned and Johnny. He's, he's legendary. Um, but we were able to sort of make a name for ourselves and establish ourselves in a time that was just um, really pretty magical because it was this brand new technology. It wasn't the very, very beginning, you know, it wasn't Pearl Pass and Repack and, and, you know, the whole Gary Fisher, but it was almost a, a second generation 
um, of mountain bike racers. And that's when it really started to gain momentum. And of course, you, you know, you talk about mountain bike action, the, the magazines were everything. I mean, the magazines of that time were the social media of today. There just happened to be a three month lag <laughs> between when anything happened and when anybody got to see the photos or read about it. And of course, you know, video really almost didn't exist. But um, I think that that really helped um, because it wasn't it didn't take that long for the sport to really ramp up. And um, the Europeans came in and started dominating sort of from 1994 on. It really changed a lot. But um, for those of us who were involved in the sport, say in the late 80s and the early 90s and had you know done well enough to um, you know, get a little bit of that. That magazine press, which was again, it was that was everything at the time. Um, our reputations were sort of um, just, you know, they were set for a while. We didn't necessarily have to have the results because the results, honestly, they became really hard to come by um, in the '90s and the 2000s as the Europeans dominated the sport. And a lot of us, you know, quit chasing the World Cup and we stayed at home and. Over national series and other races, and um, the 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 focus from the U.S. side at least was on some of the, that kind of racing, and the people who were paying attention to the sport at that time appreciated you know the kind of uh, events that we were doing. So you know, and then I've just never been able to quite shake the racing bug, and uh, I didn't have a, a career necessarily that I was trained for. You know, I had a business degree and a communications degree. I wanted to. You know, well, I thought maybe I would get into making, you know, skiing and kayaking films. Uh, that's what I was interested in at the time. But, you know, got derailed by um, racing bikes as I graduated because I was I was in school from 87 to 90 and finished up my degree during those years. But that was, you know, right as the mountain bike racing was really picking up. So I didn't um, really miss a beat from graduating uh, from, you know, what's now Western Colorado University here at Gunnison to you know heading off on uh you know the racing circuit and did that for for a number of years so i never like susan was a a registered nurse and she worked as a nurse so it was really easy for her and something she wanted to do to retire from racing and fall back into that career whereas you know i wasn't you know specifically trained to do anything you know i may have wanted to make ski movies but i didn't understand um you know i hadn't I didn't have the experience with cameras. I couldn't just fall back into a career. So I probably have hung on to it a lot longer than than, than some others have. But uh, I, I, you know, I enjoy it, and I live in a place that I've got great training opportunities, great riding opportunities, and um, you know, love to compete. I've never lost that that particular um, bug, and um, you know, to this day, I still like to to put a number on uh, every now and then and get out there and, and race with some people. For sure. And you talk about magical times and uh, the right place and the right time. And, and you brought up my next topic, Susan. So you're married to a 1996 Olympic bronze medalist who happened to be in the inaugural cross-country mountain bike race in Atlanta, uh, Georgia. And then Susan herself was inducted in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 97. You were inducted in 2000, three years before you were uh, meeting us in Leadville. What was your pro career like back then? Did you support Susan at all? Was that when she fell back into nursing and then she kind of became your support? What was that like? Yeah, so... Um 
I was riding for the Diamondback team um, here in Gunnison. It was just a, a shop team. Diamondback gave them five bikes, and then the, the shop here decided who got the bikes, and that's sort of how I got my start, riding for what was called Tuna Bike and Ski um, back in the day. And then you know, Susan was out in Chico, California, and um, I think it was 88 or 89, somewhere in there at the Mammoth World Championships. This is before the UCI Worlds. Um, she did fantastic. She, uh, I think she won the hill climb. Can't remember what she did in the cross country, but won an overall. So she had really, um, you know, entered that, that group at the time, which was, you know, Sarah Ballantyne and Lisa Muick and just a few other ladies. Um, so she ended up becoming the Diamondback factory rider. And then I eventually earned a factory ride with Diamondback. But at that time, it was so much different. It was simply that, you know, Susan was on the team. I was on the team. We, we rode the same bikes. We wore the same kit. But she traveled completely separate from me. I traveled completely separate from her. We slowly got to know each other um, by being at the same races together and um, became friends and um, became really good friends once Diamondback, and this is just the way mountain bike racing was at the time. It wasn't very organized. We didn't have mechanics. We didn't have swaniers. We didn't have support at all. Um, we just went to the races. We got to the races ourselves and, and worked on our bikes ourselves and figured out our feeds and everything else, uh, you know, basically uh, alone. And um, it wasn't until, say, 1993, Diamondback was one of the first teams to have a box fan and mechanics and all that kind of thing. But going back, um, Susan and I were getting to know each other. And in 1991, that was the inaugural year of the World Cup. And we had a couple races in uh, Europe in the spring. And we traveled over there together. And um, yeah, just figured it out. All we had was plane tickets and <laughs> the location of the races. We didn't have accommodations or anything. We just winged it. And with, with other riders, too. You know, we group up with you know some other riders and, um, it was a blast. It was awesome. I mean, we had to bring um, as, as many extra parts as we could because you couldn't just go to a shop and buy um, mountain biking parts in Europe in 1991. They weren't. They simply weren't available. If you, you know, broke a derailleur over there, if you didn't have one, you know, you'd be in a world of hurt. So those were really fun times. Um, but we were just friends. But we got to know each other really well as friends and started traveling more to races and and um, had that more almost like a, a you know buddies or brother and sister relationship, which was cool because I don't, I think it was, you know, we didn't have a, we were trying to impress each other. We were just being ourselves. And then, um, it was 1992 and, uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, we were in a position where, um, I was no longer involved in a relationship and she was no longer involved in a relationship. And, um, you know, one thing led to another and we ended up, uh, you know, becoming an item and, Dating there for a few years. I know that made the folks at Diamondback pretty nervous. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we were married then uh, in 96 after the Olympics, but had been going strong for a number of years there. And, um, you know, it was fun to travel, um, you know, with my, with essentially my soulmate and, and race. And it was always interesting. It, it seemed like we never, we rarely both had good races the same weekend. Um, so one of us was stoked and, and she, she was much more consistent than I was. I was pretty up and down with my results. Um, but, um, it, it was, those were, those were fantastic times. And she actually wanted to retire after 1995 and she had planned to do that. But in the world championships at Kirtsarten in Germany, she was fourth, a really good result. I think she was, um, 
she wasn't the top American. She was the top American besides Julie Hurtado. And Julie had already sealed her spot on the 96 Olympic team. Um, and then, um, did I say 94, Kearsarkin or 95? I meant 95 if I said 94. Um, and so with, with that result, Susan found herself leading in the, in the points chase for that second position on the team. They were going to take two girls to Atlanta, uh, two riders, and Julie's already in. And so then she's like, okay, well, I guess I'll race again because the Olympics should be super cool. So she <laughs> raced again in, in 96, and they had two more races to decide who got to go. The first one was a test event on the Olympic course in, uh, in Atlanta. I think that one was in May or June. And she was in a, a, a battle with Ruthie Mathis, Tammy Jacques Graywall, uh, and then Susan. And so Ruthie really dominated that race and kind of took over the driver's seat <clears throat> Um, and really took the pressure off of Susan, put the pressure on, on Ruthie, and then going into the, the Norma race in Michigan at uh, Shanty Creek, the points were so close for that second position that whoever came first of the three of them would get the Olympic spot. And so it was a really cool race. Um, Julie was had fantastic form, so she won the race. She was off the front, and, and there was this battle for, for basically whoever gets second to Julie is going to punch their ticket to Atlanta. And um, Susan, Susan got it. You know, she she beat Ruthie and Tammy that day, punched her ticket to Atlanta, and that was just you know I think that was maybe three weeks before the games or four weeks before the games. Oh goodness! And, uh, I, I remember um, going out with her here and her coach at the time, a gentleman named Dave Smith from the UK, great coach. Um, you know, he's assigning her this training, and I'm trying to help her with it. And this one workout, one of the road bikes, and. She's supposed to have a heart rate of such and such, and she's essentially kind of trying to, you know, pace behind me. And I remember she kept telling me, "Can you go a little harder? Can you go a little harder? Can you go just a little bit harder?" And I mean, I'm just dying. Uh, and and you know, she's you know, obviously in my draft, but um, I was just I was just beside myself with pain at that point. But anyway, then she left and um, went to to uh, they had great um, great support, and she taught her stories about the support that they received from the U.S. team. Uh, are phenomenal and, and so she got down there a couple weeks in advance i think to train in the heat and humidity they were in alabama um they moved house a couple times but they had chefs and all kinds of things you know great food and uh, again she didn't really have the the pressure on her nobody was paying attention to her all the spotlight was on julie Furtado. um so she had all the pressure and um, susan was able to just prepare and do her own thing and, and line up uh, at, the, on the, at that race and and um, you know she had a, a good day and was able to, to take that bronze medal which was cool I happened to be there I was um, you know part of the design team for that course um, kind of a minimal part of the design team but then I was able to work the race and so I was down there for you know the whole week prior to the event but I was working like a dog um, you know full manual labor getting the course ready to go um, but on that day, um, I had my bicycle, and um, I knew the course, of course, inside and out. I knew all the shortcuts. So during that race, I was able to just ride my bike between all the different sections, and I think I was able to see her you know, five or six times per lap and keep cheering her on. And, and um, I could tell it was a special day and that she was, she was going well, and Dave Smith had her ready to go. And, um, yeah, no, so that's been, that was really cool. And then she retired. Um, after that, you know, she, she still finished that season out, but retired at the end of that season. We were married that October and, um, we celebrated 25 years of, of, um, 
of marriage this October. So that was a long time ago, 25 years. Well, congratulations. You, that's a, a big, big milestone for sure. And yes, I mean, talk about long careers, things, in, you know, being at the right place at the right time, as you said, what you're still kind of riding on some of those right place at right times, it seems like. Um, are you not still managing the Topic Ergon team? Yeah, I don't manage um, Topic Ergon. That's a, a gentleman at a Buena Vista named Jeff Kirkove, um, fantastic guy. Um, I'm just part of the team. Uh, started with, with those guys in 2008. And, and how long's Jeff had the reins? Probably 2010 managing that, or has he been there that whole time too? Or you know, I'm pretty sure that Jeff um, Jeff was already there, maybe just as a writer initially. He was okay, a, a pro writer, and then um, and then he I don't know when he took over management of the team, but it was right around that that time when when I joined. Um, so I'd say it was it could have been 2008 or, or even just slightly before or maybe a little bit after, but um, Jeff's been a key part of that program and um, you know really the the foundation of it from from the very beginning. Well, and I've loved that he's embraced Colorado because he's where he's over in Vail just before that, and uh, it's always fun to bump into. I see you guys at every single thing I go to. Uh, and now, like, before we get into Leadville, you're also a race director of a pretty popular race over in Gunnison. Do you want to give a little plug about your race? Sure, sure. The the original Growler um, started that race in, in 2008. A lot of things were happening around 2008. And I had started a trail organization in 2006 called Gunnison Trails um, here for, um, for hiking, um, trail running, and mountain biking uh, and trail maintenance, trail stewardship, uh, trail user education, and uh, new trail development here in the Gunnison Valley. It was something that Crested Butte had had, you know, for a couple of decades. Um, they're the oldest, um, you know, mountain biking trail organization on the planet. Gunnison, you know, no one ever, you know, took the took the ball and ran with it. And finally, you know, I always felt like it was something that, that should happen. Finally, I did that in 2006. And, um, you know, in my conversations with the folks at IMBA at the time, they said, you know, they are our most effective local organizations have at least a part-time paid executive director. Uh, and that made a lot of sense to me. If it's all volunteer, um, you can get a lot done. Um, in some places have Uber volunteers that are just fantastic, but there's also plenty of examples of volunteers burning out and just not enough time to go around. Uh, a lot of the meetings you might have to attend with land managers happen during the week, during the middle of the day if you have a regular job you can't just you know bug out and, and go to a volunteer meeting so that really was in my mind um you know based on what i was told from folks at imba that i needed to figure out some sort of a funding mechanism to afford to pay somebody to be the executive director and really lead the organization because i knew that that would make us that much more effective so i, I still i had always thought about a, a, an epic race at Harvard rocks so and we had the rage and the sage back in the day uh, Greg Morin and the folks at the tune-up did a phenomenal job with that race for, for years. And I mean, that race had over a thousand competitors um, in the early 90s. It was a huge race. But it had gone away and, and Gunnison didn't have a race anymore. And so some, some guys approached me, uh, trail runners actually, about, about helping them with a, a race that they had kind of conjured up called the Sage Burner. And it was going to be a 50, 25 and 50K trail running race out of Hartman's. And they 
asked me if I would help them with the course, you know, get it, you know, help them line it out, mark it, get it ready for the race. And, and I told him I would, and, um, you know, mark this thing. And then I was like, man, it'd be crazy not to race bikes on this course because it's turnkey. It's here. They're only racing one day. We'll just take the next day. And so we threw it out there in 2008, you know, 25 bucks. Um, that was kind of not the infancy of social media, but it wasn't, it wasn't very sophisticated, but Jeff Kirko was a big help. Um, and we put the word out and I think 112 people lined up, um, out there at Hartman Rocks and, um, you know, the, 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 the namesake, the original growler was a 64 mile race. It was two laps on a 32 mile course and pretty, pretty tough racing. Uh, we didn't even have a, a I think we ended up offering the, the, the one lap version just because people were asking for it. Um, and so that was the first year and the second year got a permit from the BLM and, and, um, cap, they capped it at 250 and it sold out immediately, um, you know, really quickly. And, um, we had raised the entry fee up to 45 bucks. Uh, and so we're, we're starting to see uh, a little bit of a profit from that event. And at that time, you know, the endurance racing was super popular and very quickly, um, you know, just fast forward a few years, it's, it's, it's two days now. Um, we've, we've tinkered with the format a little bit this last year. Um, we took away the, the 64, the two lap race, and there's another sort of 11 or 12 mile loop that's even further out into the hinterlands, um, southwest of Gunnison. So we added that onto the 32. So we've got the classic 32 on, on Saturday. And on Sunday, we've got something called the Big Bad, um, which is that 40 ish mile loop, which is, you know, that's a great distance. And then we've also, we also added a, a shorter distance called the Pup. And that's a 20 mile event. Those two share uh, Sunday. So, you know, long story short, that race has been capped at 700 and, um, it's 350 a day. So yeah, 700 competitors, uh, over the course of two days. And, um, it, it spits out a, a nice chunk of change for Gunnison trails and it's a hundred percent owned and operated by Gunnison trails. Um, you know, I started the event, but it was, it was never, you know, for me to own it was, it was for the trail organization and, now, uh, since I'm not w- working for Gunnison Trails anymore, um, I'm the, the, on the board of directors, uh, Tim Kugler, it's his, it's his baby. He's the new ED. And, you know, that was that funding mechanism I talked about. And I wasn't going to do Gunnison Trails forever. And when um, the position at IMBA opened up and I decided to take it, I had to resign from Gunny Trails. And we had a board of directors. We're a 501c3. We've got, you know, you know quite a bit of, of, of funds in the bank from, from the growler. Uh, and a few other things, but the growler is that primary fundraising mechanism. So it was really easy just to, to put out a, a job search and, and find the new ED. And we found Tim and he's been knocking it out of the park ever since. And, um, you know, we also pay a trail crew and we pay several young people all summer long to, to build and maintain trails. So but the growler is what really got that going. Uh, and then we also started uh, a pennies, we call it pennies for trails. And there's some local businesses, double shot cyclery. Uh, the Dive, uh, which is a, a great restaurant, High Alpine Brewing, and the Vermont Sticky Yicky Syrup Company, they do a, a 1% add-on to uh, all of their uh, sales. And um, that that creates uh, another chunk of change. And, of course, I, I stole that idea from the folks over in Salida. I think it's called the Boathouse uh, Cantina. Um, they've been doing that for years. And um, a simple, you know, sort of a 1% program. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that, that funding piece is important for, for local organizations. If you have the resources, um, you can get so much more done. And then the people that, that came and participated in the growler, they knew their, you know, their entry fee, 100 bucks, um, you know, no small amount of money. 
I think they feel just a little differently knowing that that thing is all that money is going right into the trail organization. And not only did they get a great uh, experience on race day, um, but every time they came back, there were you know, new trails, improved trails, um, you know, relationships with the wildlife folks and the agencies here in town, uh, the land managers. So uh, it became, you know, a bit of a, a model um, for some other events too. Um, the Golden Giddy Up, those guys said that they, you know, they looked at how the Growler sort of did its thing and um, you know, modeled some of what they did off of the Growler. And that does a, a lot of good good for um, the folks down in Jeff. I'm not sure that that event still exists anymore. It's certainly more difficult to put events on these days because trails are, are more crowded. Even Hartman Rocks, where the Growler takes place, those first few years, there's nobody out there. And, and we didn't worry too much about you know, places the trails crossed, you know, some of these two track roads and whatnot, but mm-hmm. now it's, it's so much busier with everybody. And you can imagine how, how difficult it would be to put a, a, a big event on a, a place like the front range where you've just got tons of people that want to get out on the trails. And, and uh, anyway, there's certainly some, some challenges out there, but, but good challenges to have, but, but that's the story on the growler. It's alive and well. Um, we had a, it, this year was just, really fantastic because it was kind of it felt like a bit when Colorado was really opening up suddenly they were like well there really are no mandates you know we had already done kind of a staggered start and a few things like that that were in place but for the most part people came and, and enjoyed uh, an unencumbered experience and we had good course conditions good weather um, and a fantastic riding Hartman Rocks of course and uh, that really set, set a nice tone for the summer. Well, yes. And I mean, boy, isn't it different when all these people didn't get to have those experiences and they're returning. We, we absolutely felt that in Leadville as well. And now you talk about the Growler and all your Gunnison Trail Networks, but you talk about full circle. Um, you're getting advice from Imba on how to put these things on. And now you are the director of Imba. What are you guys up to as an organization today, and what's your roadmap look like? Well, um, you know, what Emba, what we're focused on is, you know, providing great trails uh, for mountain biking for more people in more places um, all across the country and, and, you know, globally, too. Um, We're certainly focused on the United States right now, and our, our, you know, focus is what we call more trails close to home. Because, you know, as much as we like to ride in Moab and, um, you know, Kingdom Trails in Vermont and all these iconic places, most of us have to ride where we live. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're up in Moab or if you're, if you're in Leadville, you're riding those trails around CMC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you ride your local trails and the more opportunities that we have for people to ride those local trails, um, you know, the better off everyone's going to be. Because as we know, getting outdoors, whether you're, you're walking, running or riding on bikes on trails make you that makes you happier makes you healthier it's an economic driver we're seeing plenty of examples of communities well Leadville's a good example it isn't necessarily 100 percent trail based that Leadville has been able to move from that um you know when when the, the millennium mine closed um the events kind of came in and really became uh, a very important economic driver in the community and your trail system hasn't hasn't hurt i know in the winter time you guys do a ton of grooming for fat biking and nordic speed and that brings a lot of people in to visit but it also brings people there to live especially these days where people can work remotely 
Um, so we're seeing examples of, of, of cities or towns that maybe lost um, a former extractive industry, whether it was coal or iron ore or, or whatever, um, and they transitioned to a recreation economy, and trails are really the foundation of that. And they, you know, certainly the best example, uh, most high profile, is what's been happening in northwest Arkansas and what the Walton Family Foundation has done there to make northwest Arkansas um, a much, to give it a much higher quality of life. And trails are one of the foundation elements of that. Uh, it also happened to make it quite a tourism destination, which I'm not even sure was, was one of their goals at the time. But, you know, people flock out of the, 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 the northern sort of cold climates during the late fall, winter, and, and early spring to go down to Bentonville where they have a much uh, much milder climate and um, and they can enjoy riding those trails. So at EMBA, you know, we're entirely focused on how, how we can help communities realize um, what we call dirt infrastructure. It's mountain biking trails, it's pump tracks, it's skills parks, it's bicycle playgrounds. Um, you know, all of these elements are, you know, incredibly important to the health and wellness um, of a community. And it, what we're really seeing is that, you know, mountain biking is a huge hit with kids. It took quite a while for mountain biking to, 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 to get to the, the level that it is now, but there are so many kids riding. A big part of it is that the industry uh, has really dialed in kids' bikes and they're lighter, they're just built better. They're, you know, there was a time when you know, kids' bikes weren't that good. And now kids' bikes are phenomenal. The, um, the high school racing league, NICA, and other independent leagues around the country um, have a bunch of kids in high school racing. And, of course, that's been trickling down into middle school. And then, you know, people look at, you know, places and, and successes that communities like Durango are having. And they, they wonder what the secret formula is. And there's the Durango Devo program, which has been um, going on down there forever. A fantastic program um, created by folks a long time ago, which is basically strider to seniors um, riding bikes. And um, the, the, the top athletes that have come out of that program, even though it's not necessarily designed for that. Um, I mean, Christopher Blevins just won a World Cup mountain bike race in snowshoe west virginia american man has won a world cup mountain bike race for a very very long time i think it would be decades um so you're seeing communities taking a look at durango devo and then starting to create their own sort of youth cycling programming um, but all this programming isn't going to work unless there are trails on the ground um, so that's where imba's focus we focus on the infrastructure the programming can follow the infrastructure but the programming won't be successful or will be less successful if you don't have good trail infrastructure. So we've identified trail champions as being a key part of, of, of new trail development in the community. I was a trail champion here. Um, I'm not sure who, who it was in Lenville who was behind all those trails around CMC, but you know, generally you can trace that back to, to one or two individuals who, um, who really made that happen. And the Palisade Plunge, you know, a fantastic, um, amazing epic trail can be traced back to Scott Winnens and Rondo. You know, if those two guys didn't have the vision and didn't sort of push it. Certainly, a lot more people come into play, and that's that's really what we're what we've what we've known for a long time is that while you have a trail champion, it's important to drive it. Then it takes you know some serious community will to actually get to the point where you can have trails. So we're working on a pilot project in, in Omaha where we've looked at the entire city of Omaha, all the green spaces that are available, 
uh, including in, in underserved communities. And you know what you'll find in a lot of these, these places is that there aren't near as many green spaces, and um, they certainly aren't uh, being utilized for um, for trails or bicycles. So um, we're just working as hard as we can to, to educate and put into place mechanisms mm-hmm. so that we can support, coach, um, and, and bring along communities all across this country that are interested in trail development. And a big part of that is, is changing the mindset. And this is happening in places, and the Waltons have really helped with this too, is a lot of times people thought of trails as just sort of, oh, yeah, you know, it's a little scratch in the dirt. It's not really, you know, it's not very technical or isn't, it isn't, um, it wouldn't be in the category of infrastructure. You know, we're really working to change the mindset of, of civic leaders and, and other community folks to put, put it right alongside your skate parks and your rec centers and your pickleball courts and, and all your recreation amenities that could cost, you know, in the, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or the millions of dollars. And, and truly, um, quality trail development does, um, you know, we are talking about much, much larger numbers, um, but trails are still a bargain compared to, to some of that hard infrastructure that I just listed. And when you see that they attract um, way more people, say, than a swimming pool, than a skate park, than pickleball courts, I and mean, those are great amenities, you've got to have those, but the audience for those is, 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 is somewhat narrow. Whereas when you start putting you know, trails on the ground, and if you have the full, the full menu of, Bicycle playground, asphalt pump track, um, a, a trail system, you know, anywhere from, you know, five miles to, you know, 105 miles that has, you know, lots of green family friendly beginner trails. And then also if the train will allow for it, super difficult double black diamonds to challenge the very best riders and everything in between, that's what you're looking for. So we're, we're just, um, you know, doing as much as we can to promote and influence and, you know, assist this, this trail development happening all across the country. And there's other elements that come into it. There's certainly at the end of that is stewardship. We've got to take care of it. And um, we've got 200 plus in the local organizations. There's probably another 200 um, unaffiliated organizations. We have resources for how, you know, how they can best maintain um, these systems of trails uh, funding is a really big, big deal. And um, at IMBA, we're identifying funding sources all the time. And we're not talking about funding for five or $10,000. We're talking about funding of hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. Federal funding, state funding, uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund has finally been reauthorized in perpetuity at $900 million a year for outdoor rec. We want to make sure that the trails um, get a piece of that. And that LWCF money, some of it is, is given away federally, other of it goes to the states, and you've got to understand the process to be able to, to procure those funds and help communities identify some of the sources of funding that they might be able to access and then hopefully help coach them through the process of getting it. Recreational Trails Program, or RTP, is another federal program. Um, there's corporate philanthropy. There's family philanthropy. Uh, there's a lot of different mechanisms, and there's, there's a lot of money out there. Um, but it takes some digging and some work uh, and some understanding to be able to, to connect those funds with the projects. And then another big piece is, is access. And access uh, is basically you know, your permission to be able to build those trails. And just like at CMC uh, there at Leadville, 
Um, you know, at some point they worked with either the landowner, which might have been the college, or U.S. Forest Service, or the county. Somebody, you need the permission to 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 to, to put trails on the landscape, and that can be federal agencies like the Forest Service or the BLM. Um, again, it can be private property, it can be land trusts. So that access piece is, is really important, and also wrapped up in access, um, particularly for mountain bikers, is is trail etiquette and the way mountain bikers. Um, operate and are perceived on the landscape because in a lot of situations we are sharing trails with other users. We're sharing with hikers and walkers, dog walkers, trail runners, in some places there's equestrians. Um, in, in some places like where I live here in, in Gunnison County, we've got a lot of motorized use. There's a lot of trails where we'll see motos. Um, we've got e-bikes coming on the landscape. Um, and so that that definitely challenges, um, you know, is a, is a challenge in certain places. But we need to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to help, um, you know, encourage trail users to, um, you know, act act in a way on the trails that allows us to keep our access. So it's it's kind of indirect lighted access. But if the trail system suddenly is is overrun with with too many people, um, it becomes challenging. So we've um, gathered a coalition of trail users, hikers trail runners, mountain bikers, uh, equestrians, and motorized users. It's called Trails Are Common Ground. And if you, if you go to trailsarecommonground.com, you can learn more about this this uh, this movement. It's really, it's a base level that's encouraging people just to be kind out there. Um, you know, if we're all kind to one another, it's going to go a long way. Um, but just by bringing all those groups together uh, around one table to have conversations, I think is has been very helpful. Um, getting inside of, of someone else's shoes certainly helps. Um, the second, the second aspect of trails are common ground is awareness. We just are asking people to be aware when they go out on the trails. Um, you know, if you just put your earbuds in and turn the music up to ten, and you're essentially deaf out on the trail uh, and not paying attention, that really makes it a challenging uh, experience for yourself and for others. So um, that awareness piece is just you know, having some some um, you know common courtesy. Be in the moment, look around you a little bit, uh, pay attention, and then have some specific knowledge. You don't have it yet if you're a new mountain biker or a new trail runner or, or new to riding horses. You know, go to those organizations that can give you that, that knowledge that you need to be out there on the trails because it's not, uh, it's not a no-brainer. Um, you know, it's not unlike driving your car when you go out on the road. Um, you have a little bit of knowledge. You know what a truck is. You know what a bicycle is. You know what pedestrians are in crosswalks. And, an interstate highway compared to a, a one-way street. Um, there's a, little, a few things that you need to know and you need to be aware and, and pay attention. And if everybody does that more, our trail systems are going to work uh, much better. And then the third element is actually innovating our trail systems and putting them together in such a way that they make more sense for how people use them. And there's some, some very innovative systems uh, on the landscape now. One in particular that we just toured is in the Salt Lake area. Uh, Draper City has the Corner Canyon Trails. It's a, a 50 plus mile system and they have pockets of, of single use, meaning there are some trails that are for hiking, uh, hiking only, hiking and trail running only. Bicycles aren't allowed. Um, and then there's some, some trails that are bicycle only and directional. So as mountain bikers on trails like that, we're able to relax a little bit, let go of our brakes and, and ride our bikes the, the way that we can, the way they were designed to be, to be ridden. And, how you assemble these trail systems, if we can start to really apply uh, more and more experience innovation to that, we can give everybody a better experience, uh, including the other users, 
uh, and increase the effective carrying capacity of our busy trails because trails were already getting busy and busier and then COVID came along and the stay-at-home orders just drove people into the outdoors, mm. drove them to their local trails, and a lot of people liked what they saw. You know, they, they liked getting out and, and walking every morning or, or trail running or mountain biking. And so as you know, moving forward, we only see more and more pressure on trails. So we need more trails. We need better trails. Um, and we need uh, trail users to have you know, just a little bit better um, understanding of, of how to go about you know, using and sharing the trails. So that, those are just a few of the things that, that we've got going on at IMBA. But it's all about you know, better experiences for people. Uh, we know that trails change people's lives for the better. Um, a healthier you know, healthier citizens, happier citizens, um, communities that are more prosperous economically. Those are all things addressed by trails, and, and um, you know, we're doing everything we can to, um, to to really help communities all around the country realize um, you know more and better trails. Well, yes, with Leadville, we absolutely have to address the same thing. Having r- the running side be our real bread and butter, and you know, I forget. <laughs> how many of my biking friends or running friends don't know that other community and what an education that always seems to be. Um, And speaking of Leadville, I'm going to dig us back in and, and get back to the fun stuff. Um, You've got a hell of a story about your first Leadville lottery experience. And I'd love if you'd share your first experience with lead with uh, us in the Leadville lottery. Yeah, sure. Uh, of course, I, um, you know, Leadville was on my radar from the beginning because I knew of the community. And of course, the Leadville 100 is a, is a, you know, competitor in, in mountain biking and sort of a, a mountain athlete. When you hear the Leadville 100, you know, whenever you put a hundred on something, they talk about a hundred miles. And I know it was a run to begin with, but eventually I heard about the bike and, and I did, uh, try to get into the race. And I don't remember what year it was, 95. 96, somewhere in there. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, you, you couldn't go online then, though. But for whatever reason, I forget how I even found, found out. They're like, oh, yeah, no, the race is full, but um, it's a lottery, blah, blah, blah. So I called the race office and talked to Mary Lee and um, tried to play the pro card, and she would have none of it. <laughs> she just said, no, no, and hell no. Um, that's not the way it works. And you know what? Of course, I was disappointed. And um, whenever you get kind of, um, I don't want to say beat down, but you get rejected like that. You feel, you know, it doesn't sit that well. But I, I absolutely respected it. And so when I did finally have another opportunity um, to pursue Leadville, you know, in 2002, I'm playing by the rules. I respect the process, and this is exactly what I'm going to do. So but then it was, uh, I believe you filled out a, a card or you, you filled out an application and mailed it in. And I did that and um, got a letter back, or no, I got the card back, the three by five card saying, sorry, you didn't get in this year. And, you know, instead of, you know, calling early and all that, I was like, oh, I guess I didn't get in. Uh, that was 2002. And then, um, you know, forgot about it, but didn't forget completely about it. And did the same thing in 2003, mailed in my application, and I got my little card back that said, you're in. And I'm like, cool, I'm in. Um, and, and that experience really defined how I looked at Leadville and how I went about sort of, you know, carrying myself there because, you know, as a, a pro racer, there weren't a lot of, the, like, I didn't, I didn't, a lot of my peers weren't there. You know, there wasn't Ned, and there wasn't Johnny, and there wasn't Tinker. Those guys weren't racing at Leadville. And um, 
I knew that it was a race for the people. It wasn't for the pros. And so, you know, I never looked for any special treatment there. I would, I would go and I'd wait in the same lines everybody else did for the, for the check-in and for the meeting and, and, and you know, attended every meeting. And, you know, it didn't take that first experience to, to really love and appreciate all of those elements of Leadville and the old gym that we used to have the meeting in and, and um, you know, the post-race uh, fun stuff the, the day after the race. So I just, you know, I bought into the, to the Leadville that, that Ken and Merrily created, you know, hook, line, and sinker in, in a really positive way because, um, you know, I really respected what they had what they had built there and, and the way they went about doing it. And it certainly was old school, you know, filling out paper and they'd mail you a big fat race packet. And, and I'll never forget getting that, that race packet finally when I was accepted in. And I'm obsessed with the courses and I'm, I'm looking at this map. It wasn't a very good map. I'm trying to figure out where the course goes. And I'm looking for a loop, of course. Um, but it was an hour back. And it took me a while to figure that out. And finally I was like, oh my gosh, it's, this is an hour back. I'd never raced an hour back mountain bike race before. Um, but again, that's part of, of, of what makes Leadville unique and, and defines it and is part of the experience that so many people have is getting to see the other competitors, um, you know, meet them on the course, you know, hopefully not in a, not in a, um, um, you know, a collision way, but getting to see everybody and, and cheer them on. So, um, yeah, that, that was, that was the, that was the, the lottery process and, and I always respected it and, um, would never try to, 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 to go around it or anything. And um, it was an important part of the race. And I, to this day, I think it's it's really cool. A lot of other races obviously have it now because um, demand exceeds supply. And Lenzo had that good problem you know, way back in the day. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, so fast forward to today, and now you are a six-time champ, something that likely won't be matched. You know, in our 28-year history, it's not even been close to having a champ that many years. Um, you've been a very special figure to my dad, Mary Lee, who don't fan out on the pros. What has that meant to you to be able to kind of be that you know, real homeboy for our local race. Well, I never, I never set out to do that. You know, I did one, I wanted to experience it. I'd never raced my bike a hundred miles. Um, and then at that time, 2003, 2004, that was really the last year that, that I was racing, um, for a team. And then, but, but it was one of those things where, okay, you know, and Ken would call me or Melody would call me and they're like, Hey, you know, are you going to race again this year? And it was really pretty easy for me to do. Other, if you live in other parts of the country, it's a pretty big commitment um, to get to Leadville oh, yeah. and, and, and all that. But for me, living you know a couple hours away in Gunnison, I could I could do the event relatively easily. So it was easy for me in 2004 to say, yeah, yeah, I'm back in. And I liked it because um, at that point, you know, I wasn't competitive in, in traditional cross country anymore. And I was competitive in, in some of the longer distance events. And I thought Lenville was, was super cool. So I came back in 2004 and, um, you know, 2005, I was, um, you know, at that time, I think I was starting to do, you know, more, a little bit of adventure racing and I wasn't with a team anymore. Um, you know, I still was able to, to, you know, have a, a partner for bicycles. I think in 2005, I rode, uh, a Maverick ML7, which is kind of a trail bike, a pretty heavy bike, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, 2006 and 2007, I rode Yetis there. 
Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I kept saying yes and, and I kept enjoying it because I wasn't doing that much. And I, I liked having, you know, that, that race on the second Saturday of August, um, to keep me getting out and, and riding and doing long rides and, and hoping to be as prepared as I could be for, for those races. And so anything, one thing led to another. And, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, Lance started talking about the race in 2000 and, and what, what, what would it have been 2006. And that really changed the race. The race didn't really change a ton. I'm sure it grew, um, you know, steadily from 2003 through 2005, um, or 2006 even, but it was, it was late in 2006 when bicycling online, Lance Armstrong said, I'm going to do the 100, this race in Colorado. And I'm pretty sure it was because of Chris Carmichael and, you know, CTS crew, the Carmichael training systems. Oh yeah. They were, they were omnipresent at the Leadville's in those early days when I was doing it. You know, they had their athletes, they had their coaches, um, Chris would do it. And, you know, Chris and Lance were obviously, um, you know, talking. And I think, you know, Chris might have said, hey, Lance, you know, there's this race. They're asking you, you, know, you spend summers and asking, you might like it. It might be something fun for you to, to train for and to come out and do. So, um, you know, when he made that announcement in 2006, that really got my attention because um, that would have been a whole new level of competition in the race. And um, it's, I don't want to say that there wasn't you know, good competition in those prior, but it certainly wasn't as strong as, as, as then it became um, just because of Lance saying that one thing, because then Floyd Landis threw his hat in the ring right away. Um, still December of 20, 2006. Um, Lance ultimately had something going on and he couldn't race in 2007, but Floyd did. And that brought it and, you know, Mike closer and, you know, a number of other, um, you know, pretty solid racers. And so that sort of started to, to push the envelope on the quality of the field there. Um, and then, you know, Lance did come in 2008. And ever since then, um, you know, the field, it gets tougher and tougher. And, and this year, now with, with the gravel racing thing going on, and you've got these, these, you know, road pros, gravel pros, mountain biking pros all coming oh, yeah. together to contest this event, which, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't put together a better course that, that in my opinion, doesn't really favor any of those those people it's mountain biking you know people will say is somebody ever going to win Leadville on a gravel bike and i say no uh, it's just not not going to happen it, this is a mountain biking course but there's pavement in it there's there's flats in it there's you know slight uphill paved climbs there's steep rocky loose mountain bike climbs um this course has every i think there, there's very few elements that this course doesn't have you know maybe on the mountain bike side it doesn't have a wet rooty descent but other than that um, it's really a compelling race. If you're a pure climber, that's not going to work because you've got a lot of flats and, and undulating parts of this course. People get focused in on the climbs, but there's a whole lot more to the Leadville 100 course than, than those five big climbs. Um, and so now you're seeing these riders that are able to, to be, um, you know, really good all the way through. And, you know, from Alban and some of the Europeans that came in those, those years through to, um, you know, the, the race this year. And, and, uh, I mean, it's just been really fun to watch, but it all started with, I think, I mean, Leadville would have progressed, um, certainly, but, but Lance, Lance had a huge impact on the race. There's no question about that, that he really, um, he really drew a lot of attention to it and he made it a legitimate, um, more legitimate event for top riders to do. 
And uh, I, I remember before, I think I, one of those lessons I won before, you know, he was there, it was 2005, 2006. And Bellwinders, it just got a little tiny thing in a place called Planet Dirt. And they just said, <laughs> they just listed the, men, the men's and women's winners. Um, but then when Floyd came, you know, that was different. Army Stapleton from the UPI, um, from AP um, came and covered the event and it went out on the newswire. That was because Floyd, obviously, having won the Tour de France, then getting, you know, the, the doping thing happened. I mean, that was a, a, a news story right there. Um, but um, it, it really uh, accelerated during that 2007, 2008, um, those years in 2009 with the film that, that Frank Madsen and, and uh, the folks at Citizens Pictures made. I mean, that really immortalized the event. And I'll still get the people coming up saying, man, I watched, you know, I got on the trainer and I watched Race Across the Sky. And, um, you know, it, it was a it was a pretty special time, and it it sort of sealed the um, sealed the you know the future and the history of the event in a, in a really dramatic. Uh, and just to talk about that film for a second, you know, Frank had done the event, and he knew the story to tell, and he knew the way to tell it. It's so authentic. Another filmmaker could have had the interest because of you know the Lance Armstrong connection or, or whatever, but had, had they not been someone who had done the event. We've all seen those kind of, of films. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been the same. What Frank and his and his uh, um, you know his crew did there was really phenomenal. I mean, they captured it, and it was a moody day. You remember that? It was cold, raining. Oh yeah. First, first time I ever got rained on in that race. Um, so anyway, just a, a, a bit of a, uh, a digression there, but well, and. I'd like to digress just a little bit myself um, because you're way too humble. Um, You know, I got to see you as a young man all those years, and I always saw you pushing seven, pushing seven. But, you know, the, the missing ingredient in that magic was nobody was pushing Dave. And, you know, when all this happened, you know, as a boy, my dad didn't fan out. I fanned out. As a boy, I was into all, you know, every big name. And I always wondered, what if Ned Overend came? What if Travis Brown came? Um, you know, and then walked in tour champion Floyd. I mean, we're not talking a tour rider. We're talking tour champion. And then the next year, in walked in Goliath. I mean, seven-time Tour de France champion. And, and and what did we do? My dad played his local hand card, and he threw you at him. And uh, what I remember is, you know, you, you, you dethroned both these unbeatable American champions. In 2010, this is way, you said in 04, you're losing your competitive spirit and you're riding. Now we're in 2010. You're out there with another tour, tour pro, Levi Leifenheimer. You're out there with Jeremy Hogan, Kobelski, Todd Wells, Jeremiah Bishop, Jay Henry, Alex Grant. Uh, Ned's there this time. Yuki's there. Tinker's there. And you... You did, you were 633 in that race, and you were 46 years old. So, um, you know, I, I just want to make sure everybody has a very clear picture of just 
how impressive and amazing that is. And I, I definitely don't think you give yourself enough uh, accolades because you really did have that life against all those what ifs. And once again, you proved the right place at the right time. Boy, being a homeboy could really take it home. Yeah, well, cool. Thank you. Those, your your words are very kind, and, and I appreciate them. But it was it was right place at the right time. You know, I happened to be the guy that was there when you know these other guys decided to give it a go, and that motivated me. I trained differently in, in two thousand and seven and two thousand eight and nine and ten. Those four years, I trained a lot differently than I did the four years prior to that. Um, I rode a lot in those first four years, but I didn't train. And um, I just wanted to be able to ride the distance. And then, you know, once I knew I might be lining up against Lance Armstrong, but that Floyd Landis for sure was going to be there, you know, I dusted off my old cross-country training and, and um, you know, started to put together a, a program beginning, you know, with Firecracker 50, um, <laughs> Breckenridge on July 4th. And, uh-huh. and, um, and, then, and ultimately, yeah, I'm, I'm very um, – I'm proud of the 2010 ride where I was fourth. I think I wasn't, uh, didn't win the race, not even close, but you know, rode that, that pretty fast time, just a little bit over six hours and, and 30 minutes. And, um, yeah, again, right place, right time. Uh, it was fun to, to be along for that ride. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was, it was, it was super cool. No question about that. Well, as much as we say right place, right time, you still have, tour champions also in that place and, and you still got out pedaling and you did that now aside from being a competitor though you have a history of volunteering you have a history of helping the race you have a history of supporting our leadville trail 100 legacy foundation you've been there for my dad and mary lee in our darkest of times and our brightest of times what has really kept you involved in their lives, in my life? Um, when we talk about Leadville being a family, it really is. But you as our champion have been there more for my family than anybody else. And I'd love to hear what fuels that passion. Well, you said it, Cole, and, and Ken and Marilee have been saying it forever. It's, it's the Leadville family. And I just felt part of it, you know, right from the, right from the get go. And, um, you know, you, you talked about, you know, some things that have happened over the years and, and, um, I just feel, you know, certainly, a, a kinship to, to, you know, you guys, the community, the event. And, you know, I don't know how many times I will, I, I flew out of Gunnison or Grand Junction and flew right over that course and right over the town. <laughs> I like to say that, that, you know, the course haunts me. Haunting is usually, you know, maybe kind of a negative thing like a ghost, but it, it haunts me in a good way. Um, I'll drive through Leadville any time of the year and, you know, I'll get to sixth and Harrison and, and, you know, you just kind of get, you know, the goosebumps and, um, you know, there's something, you know, really special about that place and, and sort of, I guess, the legacy. And, you know, I'm a Colorado native and, and the history of Colorado is something I'm intrigued with. And you know, knowing all the things that happened in Leadville from, from those early times and, and um, you know, if those, if those walls and those streets and, and those alleys could talk, um, <laughs> it would just be amazing. But um, 
the the authenticity of that race, the way that, that it was, you know, it was created by Ken and Marilee, um, the way that they, you know, kept the race in a certain sort of, you know, this is what Leadville is, um, the event. I really appreciate that. I appreciate um, the three of you and, and everybody else that I've come across along the way. Um, there's been a lot of other, other people, you know, Josh Colley and Abigail Long and so many others that uh, have moved mm-hmm. on to, to different endeavors, but are certainly part of that world. But I mean, mm-hmm. the main, and, you know, the, the lifetime folks for sure, Kimo and, and Melly and, and Baram, of course, but you know, the, the, the roots and, and the immovable objects are, you know, Ken and Marilee and yourself. And, um, you know, that's, that's really special. And I, like I said, I felt a, you know, a strong bond and a, family um you know a kinship with with a, with the three of you right away and um you know that transcends the you know the winning and the event and all of that and um you know I, I, the event and, and and what you guys have created has been so powerful to so many people and changed so many lives that offered so much more um sort of living uh to the people whether they're on the bikes or supporting or just cheering somebody on, you know, from the office in Cincinnati that they happen to know is going to Leadville. And, you know, because of the, you know, the technology we have today and because Frank documented it in his two films, people can feel like they're a part of that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that first film, Ken's, Ken's, Ken's speech, um, you know, that, that was immortalized for the first time. And, you know, he'd been doing that every year. And there's not many events, if any, that I can think of that, that have that kind of um, uh, totality to them, to where you're not just lining up and racing and calling it a day. There's a whole lot, uh, there's a whole lot more going on there, and that's what what really pulls people in. Is you might you might think you're just registering for a bike race at first, but you know, very quickly you realize that <clears throat> there's a lot more to it than that. It's very special. Well, yeah, even with your family, I mean, I get the sweetest notes year-round from your brother, Brian, no matter what I'm trying to take on, and um, I know so does the rest of the Leadville family get those notes from him. What I really remember is being younger and being in that finish shoot behind my dad and behind these two beautiful little boys holding the medal, getting ready to go run out and hang it around their, their daddy's neck. And that was you and your kids. And, you know, today to see one of them's a pro scooter rider and one of them's coming up in mountain biking Boy, what has that meant to you? What has it, it meant that you've probably shaped those lives from what they've seen you doing here to them all taking part? No, no, that's been really cool. And, and uh, I have a photograph I'm looking at it right now. It's taken from behind, and it's, it's, it's your dad and the twins, Ben and Sam. Mm-hmm. And they're looking, they're looking off into the distance, you know, looking for me. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't one of the years that they were looking at me to come across the line winning. Uh, it was probably 2008 when, uh, or 2009 rather, when um, you know Lance was 30 minutes ahead of me. But um, no, it's it's been fantastic. They've they've been to so many. And, um, they're they're you know Sam loves to go up to Leadville and, and ride scooters there when he gets a chance in the park. And you know Ben <laughs> sang the national anthem 
uh, before the race a couple of years, which was a fantastic experience for for our family, for Susan and I, and um, and Cooper. You know, he's really the only one that rides mountain bikes, but you know, he's he definitely talks about you know one day he's going to do the Leadville 100. I have to remind him he needs to trade if he's going to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's been uh, it's been it's been fantastic um, thing for our family and. My brother, you know, the story of my brother coming to the Lindell 100 is, is one that, that I really cherish because, um, you know, he, he he did it. He never raced his bike, but he always had a mountain bike. He liked to ride it. He did a, a little time trial in his neighborhood down in, in Ken Carroll in Denver, and he was just like, he got second. <laughs> it was the first time he'd ever raced. He's like, Dave, I know how you feel now. It's so, oh, I love it. It was so great. I said, you should do Lindell. You, you like Lindell. You love climbing. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. This is in, this is in September. So that's all I needed to hear. I put a, I submitted an, uh, uh, an application for him. This was 2005, I think, and it was still paper back then. So I sent it in, and and I never heard from him. And I got, you know, I was in the race, and, and I knew that the card had been sent out, but he never, he never said anything. I never asked him about it. And then all of a sudden, I think it was in May, I get a call from him. He's like, "Hey, what's this card I got from Lindo?" I, go, I don't know. What does it say? It said. Well, he says. He says it says that I'm in the Leadville 100. I'm like, ah, oh, congrats, you got in. Remember, remember we talked about this in September? And, he, and there was just silence on the other end of the phone. Uh, he had buried it on the table. You know, it had been there for a couple of months, but, you know, somehow in the mail it got covered up, and he, even though he had it. So so I just started telling him, you know, what he should do, how he should how he should train, how he should prepare, things to think about, you know, his pacing, all those, all those elements. You know, and this is in, you know, May, June, July and it was so funny because you know, there was a lot going on in his life at that time. He was super busy with work and, and he really probably didn't want to do the Leadville one hundred because it was an intimidating experience for him. And it was so funny because Susan, my wife, and my mom, they would both tell me they're like, I just talked to Brian. He says he's not doing the he's not doing the race. <laughs> and so I'm like, Okay, fine. But but instead of saying, Hey Brian, I hear you're not doing the race, what's up? I, I just said, Okay, so you know, make sure this week you do this and and when you're in the race, you got to make sure you pace yourself. So I never even, you know, acknowledged that I had heard those words from, from Susan and my mom. And for whatever reason, he could never tell me he didn't want to do it. So he just he just kept going along on this journey that he didn't really want to be on. Uh, <laughs> and and I'll never forget, you know, I got his bike all prepped. I was over on, maybe his chain. This is the night before the race. And you know, I can tell he's just nervous. And if I would have given him an out, he would have taken it. If I would have said, do you really want to do this? He's like, no, I got Okay, you have to do it. But I wasn't going to get him that because I knew it was going to be a valuable experience for him. I didn't know it would be as valuable as it ended up being for him because you don't know that, you know, when you're, right. when you're just in the beginning. So that morning, the morning of the race, you know, the race starts at 630, I don't know, 6 o'clock. I find him downtown, like in the doorway of the bank where there's a little bit of, you know, maybe some warmth. He's just, he's got a big jacket on and he's shivering. And I know that if I would have said, do you really want to do this? He would have said no, and he and, and but instead, you know, get, yeah, come on, get in there, line it up. Get, you know, remember, pace yourself really carefully. And he, he, I can't pace myself carefully. I tell myself to pace carefully, but I always go out way too hard. He was very disciplined, and I mean, his ten Leadvilles—they're in a tight window, all mm-hmm. you know, um, sub nine, so like eight fifteen to eight forty-five. All of his Leadvilles have been right in there. But anyway, he finishes that first Leadville. And that was it. He was hooked. There was no more convincing him of anything. He it was it was a life changing experience for him. And it wasn't just for that. You know, it changed the way he looked at aging. It changed the way he looked at 
fitness. It changed the way he looked at, you know, just about everything. And it gave him, you know, something every single year. Uh, one year he didn't do it because he moved his daughter into the university. just happened to coincide with the weekend. But he did 10. He got his 10-year buckle. And, um, you know, it was, it was super meaningful to him. But I love the way um, that story goes because it was just classic. Um, you know, push people a little bit sometimes. Or push yourself to get out of your comfort zone. And don't give in to the easy, the easy exit, which is always there. Um, and then you might find something really valuable comes of it. And certainly that was the case with him and so many other people who have done the event. I know that for a fact. Oh yeah. It's the hit in that line's definitely changed my life as much. Can you tell us how Leadville and the Leadville Trail 100 have shaped your life beyond race day? Oh, you know, Ken's, Ken's words, um, you're stronger than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. Um, you know, as cliche as it sounds, it's so true. And that's certainly something that, that I learned by doing the event. And, um, it, uh, you know, it just, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to put into words, but it definitely changes how you look at everything and how you tackle everything. And, um, you go through a lot out there and there's some highs, but there's always some, some lows and there's some doubt. And it really mm-hmm. teaches you how, to to work through all of those things and, and it, it shows you how you can do it in other aspects of your life so i know you know for certain that um you know i'm a stronger person because of, of you know the lentils that i've done and everything that i do and, you know it's relationships with people it's you know doing difficult things making difficult decisions um all of those things you know you can draw a parallel um, to life in just about everything that you experience out there. And, and the preparation is really a big part of it, too. I mean, what happens between the firing of the gun and when you cross the line is remarkable. But for so many people, I think that that, that mental journey is so much more than that. And for me, it was certainly the same. And, and that training and preparation are, are so important. And it really shows you the value of being prepared. And you know, you, you know sometimes when maybe you're on that line and you didn't put the time in. And, and maybe you'll never want to be in that position again. Um, that was never the case for me. I always felt like I was prepared. Uh, I took it took it very seriously as far as my preparation. Um, but that journey, um, and, and for a lot of people, it became a year round journey. As soon as as soon as you were done um, with with one, you're kind of celebrating or lamenting, depending on how it went for you. But you're already starting to think about, you know, what can I do? Um, you know, how's this going to go next year? And uh, so the, the lessons, the lessons learned, the experiences gained um, have been invaluable to me in my life and to so many, so many other people. And I hear it constantly from people how um, the Leadville Trail 100 essentially changed their lives, took them on a different trajectory, in a positive trajectory. And maybe they weren't on a positive trajectory, whether it was um, they weren't that healthy or they weren't that fit or, or whatever it was. They were in a difficult relationship. And it, it was sort of it was what they needed. To, to break off into a completely different and positive direction. Well, yeah, that's a story like Brian has. And even myself, I guess, I was on a trend of <clears throat> not being very healthy just where I'd gotten out of athletics and just growing up with the events. It, it sucked me in, too. Um, now, when you think of Ken and Mary Lee, what are, what are some of your more memorable moments with the two of them? 
Oh, there's so many. Um, I mean, the, the one that just always flashes into my mind was before I knew Ken very well. And we were out there, and I think I was by myself already. Or maybe I was with someone, I can't remember. But we were just starting up Columbine before you get into the trees there. And um, there's a, uh, I think it was a Chevy Stepside pickup with flames on the side of it from the 70s uh, that I see up ahead. And that was in the times when you would see nobody out of that course. Nobody. Uh, it was really rare to come across a person out there. Particularly around Columbine, you saw you saw very few people, um, and it was Ken, and he was out there cheering for us. And you know, he's, he's a runner, so he's wearing a pair of those dolphin shorts. They were, I think, they were probably red and white stripes. <laughs> yeah. um, but I just, I just thought that was so awesome. He'd come out there all by himself, driven his truck out there, and was out there you know, cheering his race on. I thought that was super cool. Um, but then, you know, so many great um, experiences with with Ken and Marilee, But I think the very best ones when we were doing the qualifiers together and we would go to Wilmington Whiteface, we'd go to the Austin Rattler, we'd go to the Tahoe Trail 100 and we just got to spend time together because we were at the events and we would go out to breakfast and you know, we'd have meals together and we just really got to know each other um, in a very casual environment and then breaking down those events was, was just remarkable. Okay, the event is done, the awards are finished and you know we've got there's a paid crew there that was helping to, to basically put this event back into the vans and Ken and Marilee and myself and Rebecca Rush and, and the rest of the crew, it was it was game on, sleeves rolled up, hard work until everything was packed and put away and everybody could go have dinner. It wasn't a okay, we're you know, we're the stars, we're out of here, we created this thing, we're gonna go put our feet up. It was carrying speakers, taking down fencing. Um, moving the podium, everything right until the end. And it just tells you the the, the work ethic that, that both of them have and, and just sort of the respect for all people. And uh, so, I mean, those are just a few of the, the, the memories that I have. Um, you know, handing out medals with Mary Lee on the finish line, you know, after I wasn't racing anymore. Of course, that's a blast. You know, love that woman. Um, but but the, those times hanging out with them um, at, those, at those other events, because... You didn't have, I mean, at, at the Leadville 100, they're, they're understandably, you know, sort of preoccupied, but I got to be around them. I feel very fortunate in these situations where we, we were able to, to really just, you know, enjoy each other's company and, you know, talk about the, the subjects of the day. And uh, it was over the course of a, you know, a long weekend where there was never any, any rush. And, and we did that for, I think, three or four years, uh, we got to do those events. So that was, that was really special. Well, Dave, I don't typically get to add the commentary back of Ken and Mary Lee's most memorable moments of my guests. But with you, I actually can. The same things that uh, you bring up is definitely what they admire about you, that we have this champion that then rolls up his sleeves and gets dirty. And it's really funny. I've asked them this similar question and you know, they've definitely said what a treat it was to get to to hang out with you in those qualifiers and to break bread with you and do those other things that weren't just work or racing. So I uh, just wanted to add that. Uh, one thing I'd love to ask you, what do you think of when you hear the word Leadville? Well, immediately, of course, I can't ever hear Leadville without thinking of, of Ken and Mary Lee. Um, but the second place I go to for whatever reason is 6th and Harrison at night in 
you know, November or December in sort of, you know, cold and spitting rain. And I just, I think I wrote, I drove through there once and I think I even stopped and I just walked around there because, you know, that time of year, the town was really quiet. Um, and, and just how that place has so much magic and, um, literally just the start finish area and, and but to, to experience it at a time um, when there's absolutely nothing going on, but the aura of Leadville, and I think it might have been a little dusky to where I could see Mount Massive off in the distance, and and you know that's just such a magical place um, on the planet. So I, I really think of I don't think of you know any one place out of the course. I think of I think of that you know just that start finish line and the downtown. Uh, of Leadville and, and of course, you know, Ken and Mary Lee, but those are, those are just uh, it's a very, it's a very special, magical place. Well, I love that. It certainly is. It's been a magical place for me for my entire life, and I don't expect that to change. I hope it is just as magical for everybody else. I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything you, else you want to share with our family members? No, no, just that I'm forever grateful to, um, you know, Ken and Merrily, of course, uh, everybody involved with the race today, Lifetime Fitness, and all that they bring to the table, um, but everybody in the Leadville family who has ever either lined up or supported someone who has lined up or thinks about it, um, and to those people out there that, that haven't taken the leap yet, um, you, should, you should consider it. I mean, there's a lot of, of Leadville Race Series events you could try. The stage race is one where they take that 100-mile course and they break it up into three days. That's a really uh, nice, easy way to, to kind of, uh, not, not that easy actually, but a good way to, 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 to determine if you might um, be interested in doing the, the one-day 100-mile challenge. But, um, you know, definitely take, take life by the horns, take these challenges by the horns. And, you know, that's what the Leadville Race Series uh, and the Leadville 100, both the run of the mountain bike, offer this opportunity all you got to do is 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 say i'm in hopefully you get in because uh, there is a lottery but uh, there's certainly other events that um, that can help you get that way so it'll change your life so get out there and and um you know make it happen for yourself and and um it's 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 profound and it's special and uh you'll never regret it Well, great words from the man himself. Thank you very much, Dave. We'll see you at home. We'll see you in Leadville. Cool. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you for having me. Well, Leadville fans, I told you to wear yellow because it was going to be an action-packed one today, and Dave Weens delivered as usual. Now, I can't stress the importance of trail maintenance and advocacy, and if you're not a member of IMBA already, I encourage you to go to IMBA.com and support Dave and the wonderful trail network that IMBA has helped create and manage. Um, I'd also like to encourage you to go and subscribe to this podcast where you're getting your podcasts, and please leave us a review. Aside from that, we'll see you at home. We'll see you in Leadville.